Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffat, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hello, welcome back to the TeamCast. Today, we are honored to be joined by Mr. Jay Hennessy, and we're going to be talking about what we're calling the Day One Project. Details of this project and our and our hope that you'll be involved can be found in our show notes. So if you go down to the bottom of this recording or on our website, there's a thing called show notes, and in that will be a document describing this research. And just to give you a sense of where this research comes from. About several months ago, I was asked, uh, one of my partners in tactical law enforcement at the federal level asked me to, what I normally work with is the tactical teams at the at the upper levels, but they asked me to go way upstream to the very first day of their sort of core tactical training and literally where somebody walks off the street and they're going to be using a handgun for the first time and the, the instructors are there to teach them how to do that. And so while I'm there watching that, and there's great instructors, here's the point you need to understand. The instructors involved are really qualified. They come from the elite teams in the world. They're cherry-picked. They're very good at what they do. And as I'm watching these brand-new people learn how to use their guns, one of the instructors goes, don't forget to breathe. And me, being a researcher, turns to my handler and says, okay, do you guys teach tactical breathing? And they are like, no. And I, so I thought that was really sort of interesting. And so that got me thinking, and I reached out to a bunch of military special operations teams, tactical law enforcement teams, professional sports teams around the world, and I asked the same question, do you teach breathing? And almost universally, the answer was no. And that super confused me because the follow-up question was, is breathing important? And they all said, critically important. And, I, and so I'm sitting there going, well, if you think it's critically important and everyone's talking about it, why aren't we teaching it? And I finally got to one of the, what are called the tier one teams and one of the sort of elite shooters in the world, sort of ranked competitively one, but also many, many tours of combat. And basically the answer was sort of simple. And, it, and it, you can see this in sports, you can see this in law enforcement, we'll use a sports analogy, but imagine that you taught someone that when they take their, their gun out of their holster, they were to breathe in. And as they extend their gun to fire, they were to breathe out, right? The problem is, as you speed up that movement, you speed up the breathing. So when you tie a skill to breathing, you risk under or over breathing. So breathing is important, but you have to teach it separately than a skill. You can't couple it with a skill because it'll lead to some problems. But this led down this road. So everyone believed that breathing was foundational, and yet people were struggling to sort of teach it. But it also led to this other question. What other foundational skills are out there? So we it's been 20 years since 9-11, right? Teams all over the world have had an extraordinary amount of experience. 20 years of experience in fire and trauma teams and tactical law enforcement and military special operations and in sports, teaching, learning, right? We're at a time where we have the internet, we have more information we know what to do with. So now what, what if we flipped it? What if we went back and we said, look, now that you've had all this experience, now you look back on your career, if you go back to day one, the first day of, of no kidding, you're entering into the pipeline. If you were king or queen, what would you go back 20 years ago and do? What would you change? What would you rip up the floorboards and lay down some really, really sort of new or important skills? When we first thought about this, we put out a request for comment as we do before we write a green paper in the show notes is the green paper. And one of the people that contributed to that was Jay Hennessy. And the reason that Jay Hennessy has a unique voice in this particular issue is because he is currently 
the Vice President of Learning and Development with the Cleveland Indians. For our international listeners, that's a professional baseball team here in the U.S., which I understand, or I'm so told, is different than cricket, but you'd have to ask somebody else about that. I don't really understand the whole thing. And so, but where we initially met, and just, just real quick, what his role has been to do is to think about coaching and learning from a very foundational place, right? But prior to that, and where we met was he had a long career in naval special warfare as um, a renowned, he wouldn't say this, I would, a renowned Navy SEAL. And where I met him was when he was around 2012 or 2013, when he was the commanding officer of Naval Special Warfare Basic Training Command, where they do basic underwater demolition school, BUDS, or SQT. This is the period that you've seen in movies and such. And he gave me permission to come out and do observations for my own research to understand how teams learn to navigate uncertainty. And that's when we met, and we might touch on some of the research that that we overlapped on during that time. But before I do that, I first just want to, uh, to turn it over to Jay and just say welcome to the team cast. Thanks, Preston. Great to be here. And I do, I do want to say that in most of my engagements with the Indians, if I use a military acronym without spelling it out, I get fined $5. So nice. I don't want to get roped into your mess. So SQT stands <laughs> for SEAL Qualification Training. There Thank we go. You. Thank you. And just so people understand, right, this matters a little bit because it leads into our next question. When somebody joins the Navy, right, joining to, specifically wanting to join the Navy SEALs, the first thing they're done is sent to the Great Lakes for a, sort of a pre-training and a preparation. And then they're sent to Coronado to, to basic underwater demolition school and then to SEAL qualification training. And when I met you, you were in charge of the latter two. And so now that you're in charge of the sort of learning and development for the Cleveland Indians, I want you to reflect a little bit about you've seen two demographics of young men. You've seen young men coming into the SEAL teams at a very young age. You've also seen young men coming into the minor leagues, the Cleveland Indians. Their strategy is to develop your own talent, which means that you're going to get some folks quite young. You're going to put them into the minor leagues before you bring them up to the majors. So you have an opportunity to see sort of two distinct populations, but both male and of similar age. And at first, just to give the audience a sense of demographics and context, are there any similarities in those two populations? Yeah, absolutely. When you, when you look at the, the young man or woman that wants to join the Navy to be someone special, super motivated. You know, I think most of us, in fact, I think if you ask any SEAL who talks to a, a young man or woman that's trying out for special operations, they'll just say, oh my gosh, they are so much more qualified than I ever was. There's so much more information out there. And I think the same, you see the same in professional sports. I think, you know, not, not a big baseball guy personally, but raising two, two of my four children are boys who play baseball. And I think, you know, the path into sports today is significantly different than it was 20 years ago with travel baseball, with just the amount of information that's out there. So I think both demographics are highly motivated and are, are probably more prepared now than they've been, you know, ever before in, in the history of either domain. Nice. And so when we talk about sort of preparation and motivation, right, where does that come from, in your opinion? You've got a young man. We, we meet all sorts of children. I spent my life working with, with youth at risk, as they say. And so when you think about preparation and motivation, that sort of internal drive, is that a nature or nurture thing, in your opinion? Or is it uh, that's both? a good one. Yeah. I, I, I hit the easy answer and say both. I, I think it'd be interesting to actually do a study on this of what's the percentage of people that are legacy baseball, meaning, you know, their, their dads played the game at a, at a high level. Yeah. Uh, same with special operations. Um, and I, I can speak during my time when a class was graduating, I want to say on average about seven of the graduates per class of about 30 had some connection to the teams, a brother, an uncle, a father. I don't know what the numbers are for, for baseball, but it'd be interesting to find out. I, I suspect there's there's probably some correlation there. When, when it comes to what's their motivation, uh, I think there's a part that many of them, it, it has kind of come to them through the family. It's interesting because when you look at the research that's been done in Ivy League schools, a similar phenomenon happens. So at Harvard or Wharton or other schools, what happens is, is that the majority of people that don't get into those schools are people that don't apply. They're people that are qualified that don't believe that they can apply. 
But often, if they know somebody who did it, and they look at that person, and they're like, oh, not so impressive. If they can do it, I can do it. And there's a little bit of a mystique there, right? That sure. having one-on-one contact helps a lot. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely the, the windshield effect. I mean, none of my children have interest in special operations. They don't woo with the side or the, the, the name of a Navy SEAL. They're just like, yeah, it's the ding-dongs my dad hung out with. Yeah, I, I get it. So the reason I was asking you that question is because as we think about this day one project, we're not really, and this is important to note, we're not really talking about day one. Day one, obviously, is the day they're born, right? And so there's a whole bunch, there's 18 or 20 years that happen between, before they get to the front end of their career, right? The day one of their career. And what we're not going to address in this team cast is those first team 18 or 20 years. That's something that is, is beyond the scope of, of certainly our research. What I will though introduce us to is what are called developmental assets and a link to these assets. If you're interested, will be in the show notes as well. And it was done by the search Institute back in the nineties. And it was done out of a desire by actually the Lutheran Church of all people. And basically the question was this, at the time in the 90s, myself and many other people were doing research on youth at risk. And the question is, what is happening to put these kids at risk? And the search to decide to flip the whole question and say, well, hold on, what would what would be required to make these kids awesome? Like before we start worrying about what's making, yeah. what's breaking them, what are the ingredients to make a successful childhood? And what they decided to do is instead of talking about the risk factors, they talk about the developmental assets, which is to say what needs to be in place for them to be successful. And what they came up with are these 40 developmental assets, which are referenced widely um, all over the world. And I won't read them all to you. You can read them yourselves, but I will break them down into their broad categories. So you've got what are called internal assets and external assets. And Jay, in a little bit, I'm going to talk to you about both because we often in these conversations, we'll default to the internal assets, what you bring internally. But I would also want to talk to you because of the work I know you do about what things we can do as external assets. And so I'll give you an example of what I mean. External assets for, say, 12 to 18-year-olds, according to Search Institute, are things like support, having support, being empowered, having clear boundaries and expectations, and a constructed use of time. These are all things that are done for the individual, right? Then there's the internal assets which need to be in place, right? Which is commitment to learning, positive values. And what I mean by that is like honesty, integrity, responsibility, restraint, things like that social competencies, right? The ability to talk to one another, deal with people, and also be able to resolve conflict without punching people in the face, right? And then the last one is this idea of a positive identity. They actually believe that they are of worth, okay? And so as I read those out and I think about those, when we go back to sort of talking about sort of the day one project, and that's what I'm going to pivot to now, is to sort of ask you in your time, either at the Indians or the SEALs or both, actually, if you were to go back and think about what are those foundational skills that you believe we should be teaching, meaning giving to them so they have internally, and what are those structures that you think we should put in place or you have put in place that will support them externally as well? And so I'll just let you turn it over to you and let you riff as long as you want on that big sort of question. Yeah, thanks. There's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm fascinated the way you've, you framed it on the external piece. I, I think great organizations, you know, have to take kind of a deliberate approach to set the conditions. The Cleveland Indians has been a very interesting place for me. And I've, it's opened my aperture to a lot of things that how different it is from the Navy. And one of them is just this focus on intrinsic motivation. The idea that we can't really do development onto someone. So in my role in learning and development, it, it's foundational. And I think coming from the Navy, there's this, uh, I want to be careful how I say this, but you know the traditional HR playbook that we're going to come up with a competency model and we're going to develop Preston Klein according to these you know, nine competencies. And I, I think the research is pretty clear that it's, you can get a person to a level that way, but, but you're not going to get them all the way. So conversely, when you set the conditions, which I love the way this is framed, and you're creating an environment for the, the individual to develop, 
but the the guardrails are just all of these positive things, you know, whether you're talking from family or community. So I, I, I love that piece, how you, how as an organization setting the conditions for it. But then I think when you get down to the internal things, you know, it's kind of like you said, the example with Harvard, what, what are we going to put on the windshield? So some of it has to be leaders in the organization modeling, just like a parent, you know, as I think about my children, you know, I hope they grow up to be readers. I can't make 15 year old boys read a book, but I, I want them when they pop in my office to see me on my chair at night, you know, reading a book to, to send the signals that that's, that's what right looks like. So I, I guess when I, when I looked at the model that, that uh, you shared with me, that's one of the things that jumps out at me is one organizations being deliberate about the conditions they want to set. And then to do that, I think, I think they need an aspirational approach of like understanding what success looks like for their domain, whether that's professional sports or whether that's special operations, being clear on what success looks like and then backing that up to what are the conditions that they could set to create that environment. I'm not really sure I answered your question. No, no, it, it was too broad a question, but I appreciated you kind of bridging us in there with your sort of general. And then I'm going to, I'm actually going to drill into some really details. Cool. So, and, I, and I want us to go back to no kidding, sort of day one of buds. You could even go to the Great Lakes, but that first period where no one knows what they don't know, right? They're coming in as sort of a blank slate, tabla rasa, blank slate. Yep. And if you were king for a day, and we'll talk about some of the challenges with change. So I'm not saying that you're advocating. No one's advocating here. This is just a theoretical exercise. But if you were to go back and say, pick three things, just three things that you would you would think now, especially now that you're a parent of young boys and young and girls, what are the three things that you would probably double down on in that first day, so to speak, metaphorically? Yeah, this is a really good one. You know, and you said before, when you're talking about positive values and integrity and honesty, I think, you know, helping folks be really clear on before they're going to step out and become something else, a Navy SEAL or a professional baseball player, who are they starting with? And it, it sounds like a kind of a deep question. It's probably a tough one for an 18-year-old young man or woman to answer. But I think there's a piece of, you know, wanting them to be really clear. What do you stand for? What are those things that are not negotiable? As you go through training and you're going to get put into situations that are going to really test your mettle, you know, when you're really tired and, and things are hard, which is, you know, a proxy for at some point being in combat, what do you really believe? What's fundamental to you? So whether you call that lead yourself first or having a, a personal leadership ethos or a personal leadership philosophy, that's probably one I'd, I'd want to spend time on, put a placeholder for early on day one. But I probably that would be something that I want would want to keep refreshing over time and kind of have it ingrained in, as people step off the proverbial, you know, special operations treadmill and they're going to do a, a school or a course for professional development. That would want to be something that I would want to interleave throughout their career. Of, hey, let's go back and think about who are you? What are what are the, the things that are foundational to who you are? So I think that would be a, a big one. And when you think about your current role. Do you think this the same applies? I do, you know, and as you know, I, there's nothing I do without I work with a, a guy, Josh Gibson. And um, I think as we think about helping leaders in their development, I think that's one of the first things is helping them think about whether what's foundation to the team that you're on, creating like a team charter or foundation to you as an individual leader. What, what is your leadership philosophy? So, so yeah, I think it, it would apply in, in both spaces. I'm just going to keep hammering on this for just a second because it's, there's a bunch of pieces that I want to dissect. One of them is that when you first described this, you talked about stepping into this new role, right? And we often in the research talk about liminality, that place betwixt and between. I'm no longer in high school. I'm not yet a SEAL. I'm not yet in the minors. I'm in between. So I'm not yet, I'm no longer what I was and not yet what, I, what I'm going to be, right? And yep. this question of, of what do I stand for and what does success look like and intrinsic motivation. Recently, I know that you folks have been doing a lot of work on diversity and thinking about cognitive diversity and different ways of thinking. And the research on this with women and folks that come from certain oppressed groups, that framing is very different for them in some cases, right? That confidence isn't necessarily there. So instead of going in and saying, hey, what, what do you think about yourself? 
there are some differences statistically in terms of gender, in terms of race. And so have you seen any methods for taking anyone, male, female, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, and sort of getting that elicit that kind of that way forward through liminality, that sort of coaching and mentoring to a place maybe they haven't considered or maybe what they've been told up until then is that they're not actually and that you've got to reverse some of that. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know. But as we've worked through kind of exercises, we've, we've tried to provide different prompts to folks to get them, not really to give them the answer, but to just to let them think. So one of the fun ones is to just say, hey, who are three leaders in your life that you really respect? What is it about them? Forcing them to think about who these people are. It's a mother, it's a father, a grandfather, maybe it's a teacher. And then really thinking about what, what mattered most. And then again, we're limited by kind of our windshield of where we grew up. Try to ask the question, who in history have you read about or heard about that you respect? You know, what is it about that person? So again, to try to get people to zoom out just a little bit more. And there's a handful of other questions, but I, I think your point is valid, especially the younger the person is, the more they kind of need to think about this, which is why I think this would be something interleaved throughout their career, not necessarily like, okay, 18 years old, I figured out who I am, I'm all set. You know, I think this is something that, that we probably never stop doing. Yeah, when I was at the Wharton School, the the tool that we used was from uh, National Public Radio called This I Believe, and I'll include uh, also the This I Believe statement in the show notes that we use that you're welcome to use with your teams. But it's it's a very simple exercise which just asks people in half a page, like less than a whole page, to just write down This I Believe, and then be prepared to proclaim something. And to your point. For me, it was a huge struggle because no one had actually ever held me accountable to say out loud a value that I have and defend it. And that for me was a real test because I was like, well, this could open me up to criticism. And that takes you down a road of saying, yes, and right. And yes, and who are you going to become? Yeah, I love that. I, I would love to see. I haven't seen that exercise. But as you say, it, the this next step of where you actually start writing, I think, unlocks a whole bunch of stuff as well, because it's one thing, you know, a lot of young folks will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've got my leadership philosophy. I, I know what I believe in. I'm like, okay, well, go ahead and write it down. Like, well, I don't have it written down, but once you have to put it on paper, it, there's it's like some transition that it, it just feels different. I think when you first write it down, it doesn't read very well, which is probably the way it is in your head. And it takes a bit of time before you're like actually happy with it. Yeah, when we were guiding, and I don't know if you've ever used this technique, we were guiding, if there was somebody who was coming across a little bit arrogant, and they were making decisions that were a little too loose, what I would do is eventually bring in my office and hand them a piece of paper and say, I understand that you're a leader and you're, you're taking risks, I just need you to own the whole problem. So I need you to write a note to the parent if it didn't work out. And the act wow. of them having to write that letter, being like, this is, this is part of what you're signing up for, right? Like, one day it might not work out. You're going to have to write this letter, so let's do it now. And that mental shift, the act of putting pen to paper, that's changed the minds. Yeah, I love that. That's really good. So I interrupted you, but you started off the first one just to say it back out, which is, you know, stepping into this new role, first asking, who am I right now? Like, who am I, who am I as a person right now before I start thinking about what it's going to look on the other side? Are there yeah. other things you might think about that first day? Yeah. And, you know, th this is what I'm thinking about now. How cool would it be if, you know, you and I are roughly in age, in our 50s, if you could open up your, and you probably have, have this, I don't, but if you could open up your notebooks and go back to all the things that you've done, you know, the, the, the different trips that you went on, the different exercises, the different things you led, and your reflections at the end and what you learned, would really love to, like, first, I guess, demonstrate what experiential learning is. You know, you do stuff, you have a reflection, you make some adjustments, you do something different, but providing a little bit of a framework for the for the new learner, because, you know, when folks talk about Naval Special Warfare, I, I think there's all sorts of mystique about what it is and what it isn't, but if I distill it down what it meant to me, it was a career of working with incredible people solving hard problems. And you know, you, you, you're brought up through this selection of where the, the team is everything. You know, you're, you're rarely doing anything as an individual. It's a swim buddy or a squad or a platoon or a troop. And you're constantly solving hard problems. And often, I should say, 
people, I, in retrospect, fell victim to the problem of what's next. Okay, we solved it. What's next? We solved it. What's next? And that's not to say that we didn't put an after action review or that we didn't think about it, but I don't know that I took the time for my personal reflections of like, okay, what did I learn? If I was to do this again, how would I do it? Maybe I'd do it the same, but if not, you know, what did I learn? And again, this would be a thing that I would want to introduce early in someone's career. And if you could think about the training continuum, if this was just a process that people, you know, you're not going to make people do it, but if you really just plant the seed and oftentimes just someone asking the right question, the right coaching question gets people to say, oh, you're right. Let me take a minute to just jot down in my, what I learned journal. That would probably be the second thing I would do. So I'm going to jump in here as well. One of the really interesting research that's not been formalized yet, but it's been investigated, starting to get investigated, is if you think about what we now call uh, different learning profiles, they used to call learning disabilities. Now we just think of as learning profiles. Think back to high school or grade school, right? You're sitting in classes in rows and seats, and there's a teacher in front. That's an industrial mode of education. It's factory learning. That's what it was designed for. There are some brains that don't do well with just a receiving of information without an engagement of information. So what you end up having is a percentage of people that are in school who have this huge natural feral intelligence, right? Huge brains, but they're not able to access the information in the way it's being delivered. So what they have to do is learn other ways in which to take in that information and work with it. But it's often done unconsciously and without formal sort of structure, scaffolding, or discipline. And so when they get to you, what often is happening is in special operations, we see this a lot, is you get a highly intelligent person who's very motivated, but doesn't like school because they're being told they're dumb and they don't feel like that. They know the answer, but they don't want to show their work, basically. So they get to you. And they just know that if they if they do their little process that works for them, they'll learn stuff. But what you're getting at, which is really so important, is to take that learning profile and in their own way, give them some structure, whether it be a journal, whatever reflection, to sort of help them understand those duct tape together processes for them that they've taught themselves how to learn to make those explicit so they can actually leverage them and accelerate them. Because if we don't, what ends up happening is time goes by and they become what I see as sort of a, a butterfly of information. They, they go to one thing, they do a deep dive, they come out. So they know a lot of things, but not really scaffolded together. And so when you talk to them, it usually feels like they're all over the place. And it's only later when they have some discipline, they go back and get their master's or finish their undergraduate that they're then able to, as adults, put some structure around it. And so I'm framing this because what I want to ask you about is, as you think about these young folks that are coming into the teams, any of the teams, they're typically statistically not your typical learners, uh, statistically. And so as you're working with them, whether it be in buds or in the professional sports, when you think about giving them those learning sort of practices, those, those reflections, what advice are you sort of giving them or thinking about? Yeah, it, you've got so much there. I, I, I guess before I answer your question, there was a this topic is like top of mind for us at the Indians. And uh, we actually, I think you may have met a colleague, Mark Manella. Yeah. So Mark's a former KIPP school founder and um, has worked his whole career in the education space and works with us quite a bit and our coaches on, you know, kind of his big four, you know, as we think about developing curriculum or instruction, Mark has this kind of framework and uh, he does it much better than this. And I'm just shooting from the top of my head, but, you know, first and foremost, he talks about it as the, the teacher or the coach, ensuring that we have carefully crafted instruction. Like what is the material we intend? What are the learning objectives? But the second part is assessing prior knowledge of the learner. Like where, where are they coming from? And he actually has a visual of that classroom setting that, that you talk about and how archaic it is. And it really, it's just not how effective teaching happens. And the third part, he talks about engaging the learner or shifting the cognitive load to the person learning, which is really where my answer is going. And I don't know if he has a quote or, or, or Stugman Moss, but someone has this idea of who's ever doing the talking is doing the learning. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it. And that's a proxy for not necessarily doing the talking per se, but doing the work. You're just sitting to someone drone on in front of the classroom. Like few of us are actually 
getting you know a ton out of it. And then this fourth step is assessing and adjusting. So understanding when they're working with the cognitive load and questions are coming up, or maybe it's going to move a lot quicker than you thought, or maybe you got to back up a little bit. But those four kind of steps for us have really been foundation to how we think about just engaging as an organization. If, if, if someone's going to get up in front of a group, they're really thinking those, those big four things. So I guess this, if your question was, what, what would I go back to the instructors as I thought about it? It would really be, hey, you know, first of all, let's be really clear on what the objective of this session is going to be, because too often <laughs> there's all sorts of drift, right? Being very clear on what is it that we hope to achieve? And then what are the different ways that we can make the, the learner do all the work? What's the smallest amount of information that you could introduce in order that they could do a practical, they could, they could test it, they could play with it, they could work in small groups and then come back, you know, the check for understanding is, okay, like walk me through what happened. I think there, there's a number of things that you said that was that really resonated with me. And one of them that you reference is the culture of learning, right? And when we go to teams, we talk about, um, or when I'm visiting with teams, I talk about tests and meta tests. So for example, think about day one physical fitness test or physical re reaction test. And everyone's there to do, say, 20 pull-ups, probably more than that, but let's just say 20 pull-ups. 20 is the minimum. So that's passing. That's the test. Yep. But- if 20 is the minimum, the meta test for the culture is 25 because or 30, because if you're here and you're doing the work, you should be giving your all. You should be going until exhaustion. 20 is just what the score is. That's not going to get you anywhere. And so to your point, I'm always I'm always like, just be intentional. Make it 30, then, then tell everyone it's 30 or not, but at least know why you're doing it. Yeah, I love that. We could, we could riff on the whole uh, standards and all that for a long time. There, there's a lot there. Yeah. Is there anything um, more you want to add? I'd be super curious. Well, yeah, that, that opens up a hole. <laughs> and it's, it is interesting, though, you know, and I've heard you talk about this before. It's interesting how critical we can be on that initial test when it's when it's actually the thing that we can control the most. Like yeah. if a guy only does 19 pull ups, you know, I'll bet you a paycheck I can get him to do 25 in two weeks. But if it's integrity, yeah. that's that's a tougher nut. So it's just interesting how hard and fast we get on those initial tests. And, you know, I, I'm not saying we, sh we shouldn't have, have standards, but um, it, it does open up a, a healthy discussion inside of any selection program. Absolutely. And that, and we're going to come back and forth a little bit, but because we're on culture, I'm going to touch on this now. So I want to sort of bridge it this way. One of the things you said in the big four or that you just talked about in terms of learning was engaging, engaging the learning, owning your own learning. I'm putting it in my own words, but yeah. owning your own learning. And that brings us back to what you, what we first talked about, which is people coming in that are motivated and are, that are getting after it. And not on every team do we have those folks. There are some people that kind of, even in my classrooms, will sit back and go, man, Preston, I really don't think you delivered for me today. And I'm like, well, whose job? Like, whose job is whose right now? Like, what, <laughs> what in your head was I supposed to deliver for you in a learning environment? And so what I hear there is I failed to get them to own the problem, own their own learning. So that's the one part. And then there's the cultural part, which is who's owning the teaching? And so here's why I'll bridge it in. We can, and we're going to keep talking about this, but we can go back and say, after 20 years, we'll get 100 people, and this is what we'll do, and I'll sort of do a little prediction here. We'll get 100 of the most elite people in the world to say, man, 20 years on, with all the lessons I've learned, here's what I'd go back and fix on day one. And everyone will nod. They'll be like, yep, I agree 100%. You'll show up to the cadre, you'll put them into a, a room, you'll brief them, and they will all nod. These are good ideas. I like it. I like where everyone's going on this. And then you'll say, okay, I'm looking at the calendar and we're about to change week one and just watch heads explode. People will lose their mind. And it's a little bit between that, that differential between the cognitive, what we think, and the emotional, what we feel. And I, I'm going to leave it open like that because I want you just to sort of riff on any of that. And I, I can have more specific questions, but I'll just leave it out there. Yeah. I mean, it's very much related to what we just said, this, you know, engaging the learner. You know, if anybody, and again, I never figured this out in active duty, but if I did, that's another topic. But I think that the setting that you want to create is first to, to identify what the problem is. So I don't think organizations 
can successfully sell a change if, if they haven't sold the problem. Yeah. So, so the thing that we see in the organization is, hey, leaders, sell the problem, not the solution. So if we sell the problem and you get the group to nod, not that those are good ideas for solutions, but that, yeah, those are actually really fucking tough problems. Yeah. That would be step one. Step two, I think, would be to engage the group on what are we going to do about it? What are the ideas we have to fix that? So going back to the first example, if it's my idea, I think any time you can attribute an idea to a person in an organization, it's destined to fail. When the idea becomes so handed back and forth and so built on that nobody remembers where it started or how it ended up where it did, then it's got a chance for success. So sell the problem, the group kind of iterating on what the potential solutions could be. And, you know, I'm going to get super nerdy, big fan of design thinking, you know, big fan of like a rapid 10 minute brainstorming ideas on a two by two quad impact and challenge of implementation. And then the group coming up saying, Hey, we've actually got three ideas that we believe would be high impact and easy to implement. All right. What's getting in the way. Let's, let's talk through that. So I guess I'd pause there because I think I threw your question awry. No, that was, you were dead on. I guess, you know, I'm going to speak just from Dr. Preston Klein right now, and, and you you can fully reject this, but what I have been talking to the teams is over the last few months as I've been visiting different commands is the following two realities that, that have, as the older I get, become more impactful. And the reason we wrote Residue, over the last 20 years, it's hard pressed for me to find military professionals that say that we won the last two wars. However you want to frame it, it's hard to find people that will say yep. we won. It's also conservatively, we over the last 20 years, conservatively, we've seen 30,000 military suicides, more likely closer to 100,000. Yep. So when I go to teams and I say, we need to change, they look at me and they say, Preston, the system produced at me and I'm pretty awesome. So I don't know why we need to change. And I'm like, I'm looking at some data that suggests we're not doing as well as you would say. If you look around the bar, you guys are all awesome. If you look around the whole community, it's not great. In fact, my friends are dying. And so I'm very motivated, very motivated to get you to think differently about this problem. And so what's interesting is the framing of the problem from protecting the legacy, which is the legacy of the Trident or the legacy of the Indians or the legacy of whatever, and getting them to think about the legacy of their own legacy, their contribution to actually keeping their friends alive. And that reframing, which is a little bit of, of what you were getting at, which is, you know, first, make sure people understand the problem and design thinking, which is the framing of the problem. Do people really understand what problem they're dealing with? Because if they're caught in protecting a legacy, oh, you want to take away my freedoms, I will say, well, hold on. The whole point of freedom was the pursuit of happiness. So before we talk about freedom, I don't need to ask you, are you happy? <laughs> then I'll talk to you about freedoms, but like it's a mechanism to get you somewhere. So let's jump to, are you happy? Because right now the data suggests you're not. So I just, I, I'll say that back to you as a way of just amplifying what you said. And of course, my word's not yours, but I think that's why I'm so passionate about this day one project. Yeah, I think that's awesome. There's a lot going in my head on, on this piece. There's a, there's a part of this I love the idea. One of the, one of the things that I want to inculcate, not top three, but is a is a coaching mindset of asking good questions. And again, that's to engage the learner. I, as the, the senior leaders focusing on better questions, and a great question would be, you know, on day one is, okay, let's assume you do four years. Let's assume you do eight. Let's assume you do 15, you do 20. Write what it feels like to leave. Like when you end 20 years, how do you want to feel? Is that married with a family? You know, tell me the story. And, and then let's talk about the things that get in the way of that. Sure. And, and there's a shit ton of things that get in the way. And as an organization, some of them just happens because we get on this cycle and we don't realize it. So I'll just give one example. It's a little bit dark, but, you know, the, the community Department of Defense has lost a lot of great Americans over the past 20 plus years. And for each one, there's a casualty assistance officer that gets assigned that is going to go notify the primary next to kid, mom or dad or husband or wife. And they're going to, they're going to walk that family through. Right. And, and for those who have been part of that, they know that is not an easy, it's probably the hardest job you do in the military. And for crying out loud, you shouldn't have to do it twice. 
And there's guys that have done it twice, you know, because they were good friends with this one and they were good friends with this one. Yep. And, you know, we could argue that each is an orders, but as an organization, I think we should be thinking like, gosh, if you do one of those, we, we might want to put you on this little radar that says, hey, let's check in with you every so often, yep. see how you're doing. And let's not make it top of the list. You know, we can have you as an assistant or, or helping someone else. But golly, having lead on, uh, I'm doing two of those is, is probably not a best practice. And, and that's just a, a small data point. You know, there's different commands that were on a very fast pace, you know, had guys that were on big ops that had a lot of things happen either to themselves or those around them or things they saw. Maybe it's worth, you know, pausing on how that guy gets back on the treadmill. So I just, I think we need to be asking these questions iteratively. What does success look like when you, when you spit out the back end and the things that get in the way along that path to, you know, retiring after my case, 25 years with a wife and four kids and raising productive children, what could get in the way of that and, and ensuring that people know what some of those things could be. And, and, and maybe that's for, for self-care, maybe that's for peer care. And I, I don't think there's a panacea. I think that as an organization, we need to first, you know, it's, it's kind of like um, if you get injured on the battlefield, you know, self-care, buddy care, get a medic. We need that same mindset when people are in a team or part of an organization and, and know that people have gone through certain things. They, they've got to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm not so sure. But that takes us to be deliberate upfront on thinking through what that success looks like. That was a long ramble. Sorry about that. Oh, I, I'm really grateful you did that for two reasons. One is there's a couple of things about the military and, and technical law enforcement, which always stymies me, just just really makes me just stare off into the world like what is going on. And one of them is that, you know, in a separate, I'll speak for myself, having been through a couple of fatalities, it's human nature that it's so overwhelming that people don't know what to do. And so it's not uncommon that if I got back from a bad day losing somebody, somebody would be like, how are you doing? And I'd be like, not good. And they're like, okay. And that was the whole debrief, right? Because yeah. people don't know what to do. And what's interesting to me is that in that community, you guys are so well, carefully crafted training and education, except for this point. And this is the thing that always stymies me is that is that when you have to go make one of those calls to visit the widow, to let them know, to inform somebody, everyone just turns to you and go, well, you're an officer or whatever. You should just know. So we're not we're not going to prepare you because we actually don't know how, but we're just going to have you figure it out. And then afterwards, we don't really know what to say to you coming back. But to your point, if this is the world that we've chosen, if this is the hard life, the hard path, then those are part of the conversations that need to be had. Like what happens when the bad day comes? And yep. this relates back to your initial point, which is so important, which is I'm always shocked when people are getting ready to transition out of the military and everyone goes, they're like, you're getting out. Like they're the first person to leave the military. <laughs> they're the first person to leave the teams. Like we're shocked you're leaving. Really? You didn't see this coming? So there's this to your point that I just want to emphasize this anticipating the end or anticipating the bad day. And then spending a few moments preparing for either in a carefully crafted way, I think really matters. Yeah, there's a lot there. You know, it's it's funny since getting out, we've um, our organization does a lot of work with Case Case Western, and uh, can't say enough about Case Western University. Great organization. They have a coaching program that a lot of our folks have gone through. You grew up, at least I grew up in the Navy, and you know, lead coach mentor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got all that. It's all the same. All the same stuff. And it wasn't until getting out, you know, 25 years in the teams and enrolling one of these courses, I'm like, I don't think I really, I don't think I really did get this coaching thing. You mean I'm going to ask questions, not tell them because I'm in charge? But anyway, it's been super impactful in my career. And I just, you know, I've foot stomped and have certainly sent the signal to a lot of my folks on active duty and just what a powerful tool and resource it is. Part one. Part two is these organizations, I think, you know, and Penn is no different. Another great organization has great coaching programs. Georgetown, there's, there's all sorts of great coaching programs. But I, I think uh, these programs could really help organizations think through some of what these challenges are. Not with the program or the initiative or the, the thing, but just asking good questions. I mean, we've got talented people. They just, they just need to ask or answer the right question up front, I think. 
So what's really interesting about this, and this is one of the questions I had for you, is that when we interviewed Justin Langer down in Australia, who is the head of Australian yeah. cricket, quite famous, he's one of the, he's very unique in the following way. He was a, a high level professional athlete, a famous athlete, transitioned to coaching. My understanding in sports is that's quite rare. It's quite rare to go from a high performing athlete to a high performing coach, but in in the Navy SEALs, that's expected. It's expected that you go from being a high-performing operator to an instructor cadre overnight. And at the Mission Critical Team Institute, we're focused on that transition. How do you move from operator to, to coach, so to speak? And to your point, what we found over and over again is that when you're a player or an operator, your highest sort of requirement is that when asked a question, you should give a good answer. That's the way you progress. The right answer on time, right? But to your point, when you become a coach or a leader, you have to do 180 because you're then defined by how good are your questions. And so when I think about you guys, especially you, Jay, when I think about your role at Buds working with their cadres, and now you're working with coaches, when you think about that transition, right, from you were hired because you have the right answer, check, we, we get that you're an expert. It's not why we're here. You're here because of the, the quality of your questions. So how do you think about that transition? Yeah, it, and I'm happy to share the slide, but one that, you know, obviously people listening won't be able to see this, but when I was at the center, would speak to new instructors and I would, I would draw this graphic on the board and maybe I've shown it to you, Preston, but I can just kind of show it to you here. It's just a simple 45 yep. degree line. Yep. It's time and performance. Yep. So that says that at a... Uh, you know, 10 year uh, in the teams, what is your performance as a SEAL? And they say, right about there, right on that 45 degree line. So then I would say, okay, as an instructor, where are you on that line? And everybody would kind of pause and then say, yeah, you're not on the line. It's actually a new line, Yeah. right? And the, the difference between where you were as a SEAL and starting as a new instructor is what we call the instructor gap. Yeah. So this idea that, you have expertise in whatever domain you were, but now you've got a new hat. You're a teacher, you're a coach, you're an instructor, and you're actually at the bottom level. Like you have all this knowledge, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> so what are the tools that we can give you? What are the things that we could do to kind of close that gap? It's kind of how we think about it or how we thought about it in Naval Special Warfare. And I think with our new coaches, it's it's it's, it's very a very similar thought. I think the difference with, Coaches is, as you said, if they weren't a high-level player, my guess is many of them saw the writing on the wall and were being a little bit more deliberate thinking about this for maybe a little bit longer time than many of the SEALs who are on deployment. They're like, all right, let's get into another platoon. And the master chief is like, eh, not so fast. You're going to go to shore duty. And he's like, what do you mean I'm going to shore duty? And you know, three weeks later, he's sitting over at the compound learning how to be an instructor. Well, it's also, you know, that gap that you, that instructor gap, what's interesting when you look at the research is there's also, there's the coupling between competence and confidence. And so what's interesting is, is that your confidence is often tied directly to your competence. And we spend our careers becoming ever more competent. So when we step from operator to cadre, we suddenly become incompetent in many ways, which messes with our confidence. And so I imagine, and you correct me, but I imagine that part of your role is also to kind of externally help build that confidence back up as a learner. Yeah, so it's, it's fascinating you say that. One of the things the cadre that set up this instructor qualification course, and there's a lot of retired master chiefs that were part of this, one of the things they realized was when you're in a platoon, you're just in the platoon hut. And it's not, you know, you're just talking to guys. It's easy. But now when you're a cadre, you're up in front of the class and it's, there's a public speaking component. So a lot of these masters said, you know, I think that may be one of the high leverage things that we should train is basic public speaking. And it's directly tied to this confidence piece. Folks with no training, we get in front of a classroom. Maybe they've never done public speaking and it's a little bit intimidating. So we give them a few reps or the instructor qualification course, we get them some reps in a four-week course to where they felt comfortable in front of a room delivering curriculum. Even if they may not be an expert on what the topic is, they have the the confidence of how to communicate effectively in front of a group, which I think is probably one of the first steps. And then over time, they're going to build their knowledge. And I say build their knowledge. They may be teaching things 
they weren't exactly in their domain as a seal operator, but now they're going to expand their, their domain a little bit and they're going to teach more stuff. So yeah, I, I agree. Because it's a, it's a level setting of what the new basics are, right? So like we all go back to our basics. What are the basics? But in teaching, the basics are a little different. It's one of the reasons we now work with Claire Murphy, the storyteller, is because we know that good instruction involves good storytelling. And, and there's that's something they come with, but they've never actually deconstructed and looked at. So one of the one of the things that I have been interrupting you many times, but we have two of your three, and I didn't know <laughs> I'm going to bring us back to see if you still had a third. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to go back to there. Yeah, I I think the last part it's it's kind of tied to the second part, which is you know this building uh, the habit of learning, right? So hey, I did something cool. I'm going to reflect on it. I I think the third part is, I think I wrote in response to you is like meditation or or mindfulness, which I agree, but I would probably back it up just a little bit further and be, you know, like self-care. I I just think, you know, getting people to think about what is a healthy day? Like if you lived your ultimate healthy day, what would that be from, from how many hours of sleep you had to what you're feeling in your body to what, how you're working out. But I I definitely would footstop on this idea of, mindfulness or meditation or just quiet time to reflect. And and I think it's probably just, you know, young people in general, but you kind of get on this fast pace of, Hey, you're going to do great work. You're going to go up the boys for beer. It just, it's this cycle. And uh, I think over time that that cycle builds up and and there's a a little bit of a, you know, a placeholder we could put in there to get people to think about, you need some time to, for, for kind of self-care. Yeah, in our partnership with Zab Johnson at the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, she talks a lot about the default mode network and other neuroscientists talking about this, but it's the supercomputer in your head that needs white space. It's why you come up with the right idea in the shower. It's because you actually have to disconnect in order to engage that supercomputer. And what's interesting is, is that when we talk about the day one project, just to bring us full circle here, is that one of the problems now is that the exponential growth in data and information means that you, you now have to treat your relationship with information the same way you do with food and alcohol. And so having a lot of it doesn't make you better. In fact, it will start to kill you. If you're not constrained on your use of drugs and alcohol and food, right? It's the same way with information. Every time you're returning an email, you're not talking to a human or you're not doing other things relationally. So there's this new day one, because of modern pressures, there are some of those things that emerge now. And so when you talk about mindfulness or just self-care or having time to reflect, that's a conscious discipline. No one's going to do that for you. You've got to do that for yourself. And what's weird is it's contrary to the culture of the team because it suggests you're not all in. And so that's where I'm going to actually, that's a hard one. So I'm going to give it back to you. But basically, moving forward, we know that you just can't spend all your time returning email. You have to engage. But you know that if you do take some time for reflection, there's going to be some snarky person that's going to be like, oh, look at you wandering off into the woods. What advice would you give to people to manage that? Yeah, I forget the author. He's a retired um, army guy. He might be in the reserves. It's called Lead Yourself Again. Or no, it's called Lead Yourself and he's actually, he tell, he's got like 15 different vignettes in there on leaders, military, religious, social justice, and and what their routines were for like unplugging and just thinking. So whatever, whatever role model you want, he's got one in there, I think, for you to think about it. And at least for me, it was helpful to be like, oh, that's it. That's interesting. That They didn't solve a problem by just working 20-hour days and like going to sleep. I forget. I think it might be Adam Grant or... One of the authors talks about the George Marshall. I think it's in the Adam Grant book. Think again. Talks about George Marshall during World War II, right? Like the senior, senior guy in charge of the army and what his battle rhythm was. And it wasn't 20 hour, 20 hour days, right? It was like he was closing up shop at five o'clock in order that he had time to think. The cool thing about the, the day one project is you know, these young minds aren't corrupted yet with what everybody else is telling them. They're like, okay. You know, Instructor Preston is telling me this is an important thing. This is an important thing. I just, I think we need to, you know, figure out that framework, you know, upstream far enough that you can create the habit and then keep it interleaved throughout their career. So I'm going to, as we start to sort of close out here and move towards the end, I've got a couple of 
questions for you that comes from the feedback that I got from a number of other contributors to the original day one project, some thoughts that they had. And I just want to get your thoughts on them. One of the things we talk about a lot is throttle control. And you mentioned it earlier, right? That first part of your career, when you just want to be good at your job and you just want to throttle all the way down and you don't know that there's other gears, you just duct tape the, the accelerator to the floor, shift it in six and be done with it. And one of the things that we find is the need to have that reflection time or that throttle control. And so as you're thinking about developing young athletes or young operators for a long career, a marathon, not a sprint, as Josh, as Josh Gibson, your partner would say, what are some techniques that you're telling people to help them think about that? Yeah, well, I'll use your quote, people uh, watch, they don't listen, right? So I think it's, whether it's the Cleveland Indians or Naval Special Warfare, it's we got to get senior leaders to not to model this, right? So in the military, senior leaders have to take leave. They can't they can't burn their thirty days because they're too busy. They've got to model that. Hey, I took two weeks with my family. That's okay. You know, in baseball operations, you know, we need people. We need our leaders to step off the treadmill and say, okay, I'm going to high five to one of my other senior leaders because I'm going to take my family somewhere. And I think the junior leaders coming in, that's what they're looking for. We can tell them all day long that you need to do this, but if they're not seeing whatever the senior leaders are doing is what they're going to model would be my short answer. It's interesting, too, because one of my criticisms of professional sports and some teams is the unnecessary performative aspect of it, which is I've watched young officers or interns or young staff member run around 20 hours a day with their hair on fire. And I've asked that work they're doing, will that actually move the needle on whether you win or lose? And the answer is uniformly no. And I was like, okay, so let's just take a hot minute. Why are they doing that? Well, because they're competing for a job or they're competing for a promotion or they're doing something and they're performing so that you think they're valuable and hard workers. And I was like, that that to me seems like a very dysfunctional way to get at that solution, right? So to your point, investigating other ways to still get to that outcome without a lot of dysfunctional short-term behaviors. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a great point. And you certainly see it in the military on staffs you know, nobody wants to be the first guy to leave the office. Right. And, you know, it's for what? It's not It's not because they're getting towards a specific outcome. It's because they want to log in the hours. And there's that competitive piece as well. It just gets in the way of effective organizations. But, you know, I would say it comes back to those senior leaders being like, all right, hey, if you couldn't get it done in eight or nine hours during the day, then we're, we're doing something wrong here. You're not working effectively. Yeah. And you can't do that everywhere. I get it. Sure. But, But I think what to just highlight your point, it's incentivizing the right thing, right? Which is not just the grind. There's a time and a place for the grind. Don't misunderstand here. There's a time and a place for the grind. But there are other times where you're not being efficient and effective, and that will have negative consequences that we got to address. The next one, which is near and dear to my heart right now, because I'm in the middle of a year-long rehab, is the, the notion of including physical agility or mobility early in your career and sustaining it throughout your career. Something I wish I, they probably did, in fairness to my former instructors, they probably did talk about the importance of stretching and mobility and everything else, but somehow it was lost on me. And I know that you are right now training for some impossible race or something, but when you think you know, in terms of your sustained performance as you get older, what are sort of some of the key things that are important to you now? Yeah, and I I do think at least Naval Special Warfare has gotten incredibly better with human performance aspects and thinking about mobility and longevity. But but I I do think we got to address it early and let people, you know, I love uh, Coleman Ruiz's, um, you know, discussion about the body. You got one engine, right? And, and you've only got one set of tires, like these tires, you can't rotate. Yeah. So these knees and hips, man, if you're not careful early on when you're, you know, in your late forties and early fifties, you're going to be feeling it. So I think there is just really letting young folks know like, Hey, let's, let's play this out 20 years. Like, what do you want to be doing for physical activity when you're 50? And let's think through what are the things that could make that road a bit longer that, that you're going to operate on, whether that's yoga, tactical mobility, whatever that is. Uh, me personally, my focus is much different on my routine now focused on, you know, mobility, longevity, uh, than it is just how much can you uh, squat and bench for sure. 
we know that from the teams, the research that we've been doing, that the ability to reset after an evolution, especially if you've made an error, is really hard. And so some of the contributors have talked about the idea of learning how to acknowledge and overcome your own errors internally. So you're not haunted by the mistakes you make. You're able to address them and move on. So when you look at young athletes or you look at Let's pick athletes, right? So baseball is a pretty classic example. You get a strike on the first pitch in, right? And so, or whatever, right? It doesn't go the way you wanted it to go. And you've got this error in your head, but you need to not be distracted by the second pitch, right? And you could you could play this out in any team. What advice would you give to young people to sort of get a, a practice for managing error in their lives? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and, you know, I think this is one of those ones that, we can talk all day long, but it's really hard for people to internalize. One of the things I like to do is just keep track of all the times I've gotten something wrong. So it kind of normalized. I mean, there's a lot of things you get wrong yeah. and things that you were dead set that you knew this to be true. And you're like, gosh, it is not a thing. So one, just, let, you know, early on, letting people know that this is part of that learning cycle. You're going to screw things up. It matters more what you do after than it does necessarily the mistake itself. Advice, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think what they teach in, in BUDS is pretty good resiliency stuff, visualization, arousal, control, breathing, goal setting, and self-talk. I think those are really simple, easy tools that a, a young 18 to 24-year-old can kind of internalize. And like you said, the, the, the reset, I think it's one reset uh, when you're in a shooting house and you, you did something and got yelled at or got a safety infraction. That's a good deep breath. But some of these other ones are hard. I guess the other other thing I think about in the teams is the best leaders I knew, bar none, the best master chiefs, the best senior officers I knew, it was all about connection. And and they connected with people. So I I think the most resilient operators and leaders I know had strong connections. And by that, I mean, somebody's going to come up to your press and ask, hey, how are you doing? And they may not have the answer what to respond when you say shitty, but you know that they're there for you. So I think a career of building connections and just knowing there's there's very few successful folks that have made it through as kind of a, a one-man show. The folks that built strong connections have made themselves more resilient. So I guess as I as I pivot to the end and before I, I end by asking you what advice would you give folks for Monday is to spin the question one more time, which is as you look around to your peers, right, of your age group and the ones that are doing well now, they're physically, they're they're in good shape, they, they're maybe doing well in their marriage and relationships, their kids like them, they're sober, right? Like just those normal, normal rate, like metrics for being a, a content human and they've actually the freedom and they are pursuing their happiness. Are there any things that you observe from them that they do regularly that we might want to think about going back and sort of laying down as a day one kind of principle. Well, the, the criteria you put made that body pool small. You started with people who I knew who retired and then who are healthy, got smaller. Kids, lo- lo- you know, like them, they got smaller. Then you threw sober. I mean, there's like, I don't know, one or two guys. Those, those two people. Yeah, so the two guys I'm thinking about now, you know, there's a lot of guys I know that I think are doing really well. And there's usually someone else in their life that is important to them, spouse or partner, that they, they made the match. And going through life is hard. So having somebody that's going to be there to hold you accountable, you know, to have that conversation when things are tough, I think is probably foundational. The second thing is I, I do think they they practice self-care. Most of the guys I'm thinking about probably do drink too much. But in general, they practice self-care. They've got a, a workout routine. They're eating healthy. They go to the doctors and dentists regularly, like simple, basic stuff. And then the third thing, I think they, they still get outside. They still, whether it's surfing or biking, there's some activity that they can lose themselves in, you know, whether you believe in flow or, or not, uh, they can you know, lose themselves for, for an hour a day or, or every other day and, and, uh, and kind of unplug. At least, you know, the, I'm thinking three specific people I knew, I know that have transitioned, that are raising healthy families. They've got a good relationship with their their spouse or partner, and they still get after it. You know, they're not they're not winning races or, but that's not what it's about. They're they're getting out there and doing their thing. So, and I think that's an interesting sort of note to end on, which is that concept of that's not what it's about. That may have been once it's what it was about. Sure, but they've been able to adapt themselves and change 
their own expectations and goals over time to have a richer, more full life. They weren't unidirectional. Yeah, I think they probably still say winning. It's just what that looks like is probably significantly different. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, yeah. before we end, I just want to thank you again. I've genuinely enjoyed this conversation. It's been really interesting for me. And so I think as we close, as we as we try to do always, which is to ask from your perspective in the context of what we've been talking about, as you look to our audience and say, what advice might you give them for thinking about that day one for them for developing that next generation? What advice might you give? Yeah, I guess I I'd say you know focus on the questions. I know you've, at least on our speaker series, met Dr. Peter Ray. He talks about the questions you could ask your children, you know, not how was school, which you get fine. You know, did you have fun? No. But asking the good question, you know, what was most exciting for you at school today? I think those same questions for self, what did I learn? If I did it again, how would I do it? Would probably be the advice I give for Monday. Questions. Fantastic. It's fantastic. Jay Hennessy, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning into the TeamCast. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.